We are turning in our Bibles, this time to the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Although if I can be a little cheeky, I'm going to go back two verses to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. I want us to get the immediate context of what Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy. The danger is very often that we are guiding in our Bible reading by those chapter numbers. They are not inspired. In fact, sometimes they're plain daft. They are a reference point, and that is all they are. In point of fact, if you could see the earliest manuscripts, not only would there be no verse numbers, no chapter numbers, there would be no spaces between the words. In fact, there would only be capital letters. (sighs) Not easy. (laughs) Wouldn't be easy in English. It's definitely not easy in early Greek. Well, let's read God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching years they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best. Come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So reads God's holy and inspired word. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Lord, we come now to your word. Pray that as preacher and hearer alike, we will sit under your word. Indeed, Lord, may our minds be teachable and our hearts obedient. Lord, may each one of us, young and old alike, go away this evening knowing that you have said something to us from your word. Lord, may we go away to live for your honor and glory. Be with us now, then we ask for your name's sake. Amen. If I'm candid, this is a sermon about death. That's nice for a Sunday evening, isn't it? The beginning of the week, the first day, we're going to finish a Lord's Day. We're talking about dying. Why am I going to speak about aging and dying? As a congregation, you're probably younger than the average congregation in front of me this evening. Well, the reason being is this. Over the years, I've met fundamentally two kinds of Christians. At least two that have made an impression on me. There is one who is rather close to me, who has regularly said over the last few years that she hates getting old. She's always spoken about the fact she hates the fact she's got so few years left and I've got so many ahead of me. There's another who's now gone to glory. I remember going to see her in the hospital, down near Dudley. She was 93, I think, at the time. She'd been married to her husband well over 60 years. Her husband wasn't there. Her husband was at home. And as she lay in the bed... She didn't have any bitterness about her at all. She lay in the bed and you know what she said to me? Knowing she was dying. I never knew it could be this good. I never knew it could be this good. Oh let me speak of another dear saint who's gone to glory. When I was in the church in Stoke-on-Trent. She was the mother of one of my deacons. He was in his late 60s. She was considerably older. One Sunday evening, she was sitting not far from where you are, brother, in the front row. And I was preaching, and we knew she was ill, she was dying of cancer. And suddenly the color in her face drained away, and her breathing got shallower and shallower. And I thought, she's going to die in the front row of the church. Now, I wonder what you preachers would do. Well, I looked at her son, one of my deacons. He just nodded at me and said, go on, go on. Because he knew and I knew that if his mother was going to pass away, 
She'd rather be under the sound of God's word than anywhere else. She didn't pass away that evening. But shortly after I went to visit her, I went into the lounge and the entire family was there. It was a big family. And after a few minutes, I thought, I'm in the way. I'm going to leave. But she took my hand. She said, stay. Stay. And one by one, the family eventually left until the brother who was my deacon was there. And he knew his mother well enough. He said, well, I'm off to do something in the kitchen. I'll see you later. As soon as he closed the door behind her, she said, tell me about my Savior. Tell me about my home. Tell me about heaven. You don't become that kind of Christian by accident. You become the first kind of Christian by accident. Or may I say, by deliberate choice. Because you choose not to follow and obey the Lord. You see, while we are busy living and working today, each one of us, we will soon discover that age will catch up on us. I was reminded coming here this morning to this school site that it's only like yesterday I started on my first teaching job down in Essex. It wasn't yesterday. It was 33 years ago. Where's that time gone? Where's that time gone? As Christians, we must live with the reality in our hearts and minds. We are going to get older. And one day, no matter how much exercise we do, how healthily we eat, how well we regulate our lives, one day we are going to die. You will take your last breath, the last neuron will fire in your mind, the last beat of the heart will take place, and you will die. And there is nothing that medicine or science can do about it. So I want us to turn to the scriptures and learn just a few lessons, simple lessons, from the life of the Apostle Paul. We're actually looking at chapter 4, verses 6 through to 8. First, Notice this, the end of life. There is an end of life in this world for every one of us. Verse 6, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Now, immediately Paul is employing two pictures for us here. Two pictures to describe his impending death. I wonder if you picked them up. The first picture comes from the Mosaic Lord, and it's the drink offering, the libation. Exodus 29, verse 40, Numbers 28, describe the twice daily offering that would take place of a lamb in the morning and in the evening. And with the offering of that lamb, a drink offering would be poured out before the Lord. Paul contemplating his impending death. He's in prison. He is, or at least under house arrest. He's in Rome. History tells us this is the reign of Rome and uh, reign of of, uh, Nero in Rome. And if tradition is to be believed, not long after this, he was led out of the Via Aqua and his head was severed from his body. Contemplating what was coming to him, his imminent death at the hands of the state. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering in worship before the Lord. That's what I am. I am an offering poured out before the Lord. And then the 
Second thing here to notice is that Paul is facing the fierce persecution of Nero. He is facing tyranny from the state. He is faced with the lie that Christians started the fire of Rome so that they're for evil and wicked and must be persecuted. And he is facing all that how? By saying, I am in the middle of an act of worship to the Lord. I'm in the middle of an act of worship to the Lord. I am serving and glorifying the one who has saved me. That's the first picture then. The drink offering. And then the second way he describes his impending death is of the spirit leaving the body. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. I'm about to leave. That's what I'm about to do. He doesn't talk about his death as the severing of life, of the end of everything, meaningful of of this dissenting and nothingness. No, I'm about to leave. I'm about to leave. End of the service this morning, your pastor Stephen said, Andrew, I've got to go quickly now. I've got to get up to Manchester. Last time it took me three to four hours. Time of his departure had come from here. But Paul says, my death is just the time of my departure. It's all in the Lord's hands. This is happening at the time that the Lord has set down. And it's not an irrevocable end. Rather, this is a glad releasing from the body of sin. What this is, he says, is I'm, I'm currently living in a body which is affected by sin, but now I'm going to be released from that to be with my Lord. And you go back to Philippians 1.20. And he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Actually, in the Greek, there's no verb there. It's really blunt. For me to live Christ, to die gain. It's that blunt. It's that in your face. And for Paul now, he was gaining, not losing. He was departing for something far better. So here's Paul. Facing death. Knowing that he's serving the Lord. That's how he thinks about his death. There's no bitterness. Rather, he says that this is an act of glad worship. You see, the apostle is assured of the reality of the Savior's resurrection. As he passes through death, he passes into the Savior's presence. And he says, that's far better. Better for me. Maybe not so good for you who are left behind, but for me to go, far better. It's right and proper that those are left behind mourn the loss of one. Especially one who is loved. Of course it is. But for the one who is gone, it's far better. So Paul knew that death wasn't the end. He's assured of his own physical resurrection because Christ has risen. I will rise too. He's assured that to be with the Lord is far better. He's going to be forever with the Lord who has so singularly loved him. So he faces his death with anticipation in an act of worship. And I don't know about you, but that challenges me. 
it challenges me. How do I view the fact that one day I will die? You know, if we say three score years and ten, 70, say medical science helps, 80. I'm 54, and I start doing the maths, and there are fewer years ahead than there are behind. Oh, I could live on. My father was dead at 68, so it's not likely. Now I readjust my maths, and I go, nope, there's even fewer years ahead of me. Is that how I view it? Or do I view the fact that I will pass from this life through death as an act of worship to the Lord, and that to do so is far better because I'm going to be with him? That's how Paul is. And it's how you and I ought to face death. Now, most of us are most unlikely to face our deaths in a sort of brutal, state-sanctioned murder like Paul. But however we meet death, we will die. It's the one certainty, isn't it? It's the ultimate statistic, they say. I'm sure you've heard it before. One out of one people die. Every one of us is going to die. When number three son was born to us up in Stoke-on-Trent, I was there. It was a home birth, planned home birth. I saw him coming into the world. Then number four, we were very eager to have a home birth for our final son. Until the ambulance didn't come in time and the midwife didn't come in time. And you're now looking at the midwife. And I wasn't so impressed with the idea of a home birth at that point. I was the first person to hold him as he came out of his mother. He too will die one day. That's the reality for every one of us. We are all going to pass through death. But if you're a child of God, you ought to be able to look forward to and meet your death as an act of worship and service to the Lord. We ought to be able to face death with assurance that because Christ is risen, we will rise to, we will live forever in a physical state. We're not going to be some sort of ethereal spirits floating round on clouds, somehow ethereally strumming unreal harps with shining dishes on our heads. No, we're going to be physical beings. We're going to physically stand face to face with Christ our Savior. It's there in Revelation 22. We are going to be in the full, unveiled glory of God. There's no sun and moon in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are all its light. There is no need for... You could have a a thousand suns in the sky. You wouldn't see them then. Because the full glory of God is revealed. Where the high priest went in. The incense, uh, once a year on the day of atonement. And the incense filled the holy place, the holiest of all. So that as the Shekinah glory of God, that little, little bit of God was, God's glory was seen between the cherubim there on the mercy seat. It wouldn't overcome him. But now there's no incense. Now there's no restriction between the cherubim. Now the full unveiled glory of God. And we will stand and worship and rejoice in the presence of God. That's what it'll be. You see, for us as Christians, death is just the start of that which is far better. One of the Puritans, I think it was a later Puritan, said that when death comes, he would, he would go towards it like a, a young boy released from school. He would bound towards it. Because being with the Lord, one day bodily with the Lord, when the day of resurrection comes, should be a joy to us. I trust you have that assurance this evening. Now I must confess I'm a little ashamed to come before you and have to read this. Most congregations I wouldn't be ashamed, but I am a little bit more ashamed to you. I wonder if I said this, whether one or two of you could give me the answer. 
the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question. What is your only hope in life and death? Now, if you don't know the answer, I could hear somebody reciting over there. I'm not looking because I'm ashamed. I'm going to stay over here. So apologies to the rest of you. Because the answer is absolutely stunning. This is it, Christian. This is it. Oh, we all remember the first answer and question of the Westminster. That's easy. But this one we ought to. This one I must discipline myself to memorize properly, not just the first part. But this is the answer. What is your only hope in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I think the only thing that is missing there is to die unto him as well. What an answer. Christian, that is it. That's what Paul is saying here. It it should be the reality in our hearts and lives. Because we are in Christ, because we are saved by grace, death holds nothing that should cause us to fear. If you as a Christian today have faced the reality of your utter sinfulness, That we are rebels, filthy, stinking, dirty, rotten, grimy sinners who are offensive to God in every possible and imaginable way. That we have turned our backs on the eternal God, our creator. And we've faced that reality of our sinfulness and the reality that we can do nothing about our offense before God. And if we have seen the work of our Savior on behalf of Sinners just like us. And thrown ourselves on him for mercy while repenting of our sin. We are saved by grace. And this assurance of eternal life should make us willing and ready henceforth to live for him. Because we are now assured this life isn't all. Death is not the end. I have a friend grew up with him, we went to primary school together, we went to secondary school together, we ended up going to the same university and we stayed in touch for several years afterwards and John would say to me, you know, he'd say, Andrew, when I die, it's a wooden box and six foot of earth. Oh no, it's not, because I'm a child of God. Death is not the end, it's just the end of the beginning and the, 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 the full reality is yet to come, the glory is yet to come on that great day when Christ comes again in power And in might and in splendor. And so today you can live to serve the Lord. And unless he comes in power and glory, you will pass through death into this eternal presence. And when you pass through death, you can do so knowing that your very death is an act of worship. When Christ comes again, you know that you will be bodily raised. You will be with him forever. You have, Christian, an assurance in the face of death that is immeasurably great.
So you and I, we can take comfort and strength and courage and glorify the Lord in life and in death and in death. And then in the second place, I want us to notice that there is a retrospective here. Because that's what Paul does. He looks back. He sums up his life for us in verse 7. He gives us this retrospective. He's facing his death without regrets. In fact, more than that, he's facing his death with the reality that it's an act of worship to the Lord. That he is going, not simply into nothingness, but departing to be with the Lord, which is far better. He is going with his eagerness to be with the Savior. Yes, many face death laden with regrets. Not Paul. And to drive home, why not? As he looks back in his life, he uses three pictures this time. The first is there at the beginning, I have fought the good fight. This is military, this is the language of battle. And Paul recognizes that living as a Christian isn't some happy, go lucky, come day, go day sort of affair. My understanding, although I haven't checked up on this, is that apparently in Wales, new restrictions have come in over COVID. And one pastor in a town in West Wales that shall remain nameless, so my son tells me with certain authority, the pastor has told the congregation to bring their sandwiches and they can eat their sandwiches during the service, and that means they don't need to wear a mask. That's okay, everything's nice and happy and happy-go-lucky, and that's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian life. You see, as a Christian, we are in a real spiritual battle. We're not playing here. This isn't a game this evening. This isn't a form of entertainment. You want entertainment? Go home and invest in one of the new packages. It's far better on the TV. This isn't entertainment. We are in a battle against the forces of Satan. We are in battle against sin within and sin without. That's why we need to put on the whole armor of God. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against powers, against principalities, against the rulers of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what we are wrestling against. This isn't a game. We are fighting against the reality of all this world of evil. We need to put on the armor of God. And by the way, I don't believe for a moment that when Paul was writing that in Ephesians 6, he was looking at a Roman soldier and describing the armor of a Roman soldier. My understanding is at that period in history that the only Roman soldiers allowed to bear arms were the Praetorian Guard. And very often they wore nothing but the red tunic and the gladius. There was no armors to speak of. In point of fact, Paul is going back to Isaiah 59 where the Lord sees there is no justice. And so he dresses himself as a man of war and he puts on the helmet and he puts on the breastplate and he girds himself about the waist and he takes the sword and he goes forth to battle. And now Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Because this is a real spiritual battle. And Paul says, I fought that battle. I am going to be with my Lord and I can look back and say, I have fought that battle. I've not been perfect, but I have fought it. And then the second image he uses here is of the athlete in the race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. The idea here is of the runner finishing the course that was set before them. 
Now, if you're like me, and occasionally you've seen some of these events, there's the Brownlee brothers, I think, one of them running a marathon, began to stumble and fall, and his brother came up behind him and picked him up and helped him to the line and pushed him over the line, so we went over first. Yeah, some of us may stumble and be picked up and helped along, but we finish. We finish the course and we go forward. That's why we're called together into a fellowship. So we can do that one with the other. We pick one another up. We encourage one another on. Go back to Pilgrim's Progress. Sorry, I'm going off my notes. This might be a bit longer. If it gets too long, wave at me, one of you, please, brothers. Right at the end, and Christian and Hopeful are, are crossing the river. Description of Christian is the waters are swamping him. It's the river of death, and the, the, the waters are swamping, and he's crying out. He says, Hopeful, I won't make it. And Hopeful says, But it's 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 shallow. It's solid ground under my feet as I go through. And yes, we might each of us experience things differently, but we had to finish the race. We might need the encouragement of others, but we're to finish the race. And even at the end, we might struggle, whereas another brother or sister seems not to. Yet we finish the race. We go on to the end. There's to be no deviating during the race. There's to be no giving up even at the end of the race. But rather a steady going forward until completion, until we've crossed that line. And Paul can look back and he says, I've stayed the course. I've made it to the end. And then the final picture Paul uses is of the guardian. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Here is the guard. Here is the guardian. I have kept the faith. What is this? This is faith in Christ, of course. Faith in Christ that saves us. The faith of Christ that teaches us the truth of God's word. The faith that calls us through God's word to live in his service, to his glory. It's the entire Christian faith that's encapsulated here. I've kept the faith. I've guarded the gospel. I have guarded the truth of God's word. I have guarded that good, healthy doctrine and teaching. And looking back as Paul faces eternity, he knows he has done this. He's defended and fought and taught the truth and that to the glory of God. When we perhaps are lying in a hospital bed, facing our imminent departure from this world, and we look back. What will we say? I'd like to have fought the good fight. I'd like to have run the race and finished it. I'd like to have kept the faith. Will it be with regret that we say it? Would it be full of regret, perhaps, because there are places in this world we didn't go to? Things that we've not been able to do. And you know, some of you here this this evening are young. You are, you're young. The day will come when you will look back. We often do that in life, don't we? We all, we all get to stages where we look back. You know, you get up, to, get, get up to the end of year six and suddenly you're looking back as you're about to go up to, to high school, if that's the system you have here. And, you know, you're looking back over the last four years and you're looking back perhaps longer if you've been in the same primary school at that time. And you're going back to how things were when you were little. And then you get to the end of secondary school and you begin to wonder, am I going to see my friends again? Because... You know, they're off to Aberdeen University, I'm off to Cambridge University, or I'm off to Canterbury University, I'm off to Exeter University, and we'll never see them again. And so it goes on through life. We look back, we look back. 
Christian, will you look back with regret? Young person, as you get older, if you're trusting the Lord, will you look back with regret because you haven't served the Lord now? Young people, if you are trusted in Christ the Savior, you have an opportunity in a fellowship like this to grow in your faith. To get a grips with what scripture teaches and grow. Do that. Don't give your elders and your pastor any rest. Ask them those questions that are burning. If you don't get the answer out of dad and mom, go to your elders. Make them sweat. I can say those authority because I've got four boys myself. I've done my bit of sweating. Paul had no regrets as he looked back. The pattern of his life had been fighting for the gospel, had been competing for the gospel, had been keeping safe the pure doctrine of the faith. But what of us? Do we have regrets today? It's possible to be here, isn't it? And We've got regrets about how we've lived up to this moment. We come and we've got the show of wanting to be here, wanting to listen, wanting to serve the Lord. But in there, we know that we're not doing what we should. We know that we're not fighting for the cause of Christ. We're not competing faithfully in the gospel race. We're not jealously guarding the truth. This week, in the open air, this last week I should say, in the open air, one of the other brothers was preaching and suddenly I realized there was somebody standing in front of him at close quarters haranguing him on the top of his voice and I tried to intervene and draw him off. He said he wouldn't, he wouldn't what, talk to me elsewhere. He was interested only in stopping what was going on. But gradually as I was backing away, he was following me and that was fine. Let him follow me and shout at me instead until we got about three meters away and then we had to stop because a member of the public thought he ought to intervene though I wasn't saying a word. I didn't get the chance. During the course of that, I was called two things. First, I was called aristocratic. So from now on, please, it's uh, Lord, Lord Andrew of Low Hill, Duke of Wolverhampton. The other thing I was called as a false prophet. If you want to know why, tell me afterwards. Is it going to stop me going out next Wednesday to the open air? Not if the Lord enables me to go out. No, it won't. No, it won't. 10,000 times 10,000, though, it won't stop me going out. Why? Because I'm brave? Let me tell you, when I stand in that open air in Dudley Street in Wolverhampton and I see people who are not interested, that want to imagine me as a hole in space, so I'm not there. And I have to start the preach, and I tell you now, the nerves make me sweat on the coldest of days. There is a catch in my throat that I wish I could clear. And I feel dry as a bone in my mouth. It would be easier to tell everybody the weather's looking a bit iffy. Let's go home. I can always find something else to do. But no, we are to compete. We are to fight. We are to run. We are to keep the truth. Not compromise with people who come up to us and call us names. And try to put us off. You see, it's possibly be here this evening to be playing fast and loose as a Christian. We can allow our situation or our circumstances or our feelings to dictate what we're doing and how we're doing it. But we shouldn't. How awful then to come at the end of our lives and to begin to look back. Having lived well, having lived richly in this world, to look back and to realize you were poor in the things of glory. All you've laid up is wood, hay and stubble. One match and it'll go up. Poof. 
to realize you've never really served the Lord. To, to realize you've never been where the Lord has called you to be. On the front line. But you know, this is the grace of God. It's never too late to start. Timothy, we call him young Timothy. He could have easily been up to 40 years of age at the very least at this point. He's a pastor in his own right at this point in Ephesus. I love what Paul says to him. He says in verse 5 of this chapter, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Boy, do we as pastors and elders need to be told that sometimes. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Those are words that should ring in our minds. Every one of us, we all have a ministry. Let me tell you now what it's like when you're in a congregation. And people who come fairly regularly on a Sunday night, for instance, start to fall off. You know, the man who stands here regularly will notice. You know, it hurts. Do you know what a discouragement that is? Go to a prayer meeting. I don't know what your prayer meetings are like. Perhaps I'm giving the game away in West Park. Things are changing. But you go to a prayer meeting and you, you open it up for a time of prayer. And there's a silence. Not a word is said. And as the pastor, your heart sinks. And then at the back, there's a dear brother. And I know he'll get to his feet. And he gets to his feet. And he prays. And there are days when I have to hold back the tears. Because it touches my heart. Because I know he will pray. Whenever he is there, he will pray. Do you know what a ministry that man has in my heart? Do you know what good he does me? your ministry brother sister fulfill your ministry it's never too late to start serving the lord while the lord lends us breath we can serve him serve him as we attend here in encouraging your elders praying for them fully and helping other christians onwards if you've never done it before begin to fight now begin to race now begin to guard the truth now that's not just the job of the elder. It's the job of every one of us. Glorify God from now with his help. Don't wait until it's regrets and too late. The very last thing I want us to notice is that Paul then turns in the final verse of this paragraph, verse 8, to the life to come. He says... Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul is not bemoaning the injustice of it. Not even when he goes on in the next verses to list all those who have left him. Not even when he speaks of his first trial, what he said, everyone left him. He was standing alone. He's not bemoaning because he says in verse 17, but the Lord stood with me. What more could you ask for? But the Lord being with him, he considers now what lies ahead. What is it that lies ahead for you? 
Christian, it's possible to only be living for the day, for pleasure and desire. And so often we spend our time and our energy on almost anything other than the things of God. We work out how to gratify those things that make us feel good. And we try not to think about the finally. We try not to think about what may or may not be laid up for us in glory. And we're living for a bird in the hand now. Not the infinite glory of our God and Savior's presence. You see, for Paul, there was laid up for him the crown of righteousness. And this would be given to him by the Lord himself, the righteous judge. Lord Jesus Christ then at his glorious appearing where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they do it out of a heart of worship or whether it is ripped out to them at the presence of the glorious Son of God returned in power. They will bow, they will confess. That day when he returns to judge all in his majesty and his power, that day Paul says, I'll receive the crown of the winner. I will be garlanded with the crown of righteousness. And yet he says, it's not just me. It's not because I'm an apostle. Not because I've written all of these books for the New Testament scriptures. No, no. Not for me only, he says. But to all who have loved his appearing. Every child of God who looks to that day and says, Oh Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Lord, come quickly. Every one of us who looks forward and says that, says Paul, will receive the crown of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Every one of us. Paul wasn't going to be crowned because of what he had achieved, because he'd been a good fighter, because he'd, he'd kept to the course and labored so hard, because he had fought so well for the, the truth and had kept and protected and taught the truth of Scripture. Paul is crowned, why? Because he had left the Lord's appearing. And that could only be by the grace of God. Because when the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, what was Paul? A man who was violent towards Christians who despised the name of Jesus and those who followed him. So it's not just Paul, but all who have similarly loved the Lord Jesus returning glory by the grace of God. By the grace of God. And Paul, he'd lived with his eye on that great day. He had lived with that great hope in his heart and mind. In other words, in his whole person. He had fought tenaciously for the gospel because Christ is coming again. That's why he had stayed the course. Christ's coming was why he had held so tenaciously on to gospel truth without wavering. Because Christ was coming again. His life was lived in the full expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had lived for that moment that he would... Pass from life through death into eternity until Christ would raise him bodily. It had been the foundation of his thinking, of his actions, of his attitudes, of his words, of his whole life. 
He had lived as a man ready for Christ's return. And you know that replies to every one of us as Christians. We are all to live with an eye on Christ's return. Have you ever found yourself away from your loved ones? Happens to me once a year. Once a year. Once a year I go on a conference. Uh, Three days, two nights. It's the hardest two nights of my life every year. In a sense, as much as I love the conference, not going on it last year was a blessing. Because I didn't spend those two days away from my family. And as much as I enjoy the conference, I'm living with a moment when I will walk in through the door of my own house again. And see my wife, and I will see my children. Because for those three days that I've wanted to see them, I've longed for them. And that's how it ought to be with us, with the Lord. It's at this point in some circles where people say, so what are you then? A, pre, post. It's to miss the point of what Paul is saying. He is saying Christ is coming again. He is coming in majesty. He is coming in power. He is coming in holiness. He is coming as judge. He's coming as king. He's coming to take his bride, the church, to present her to the Father with exceeding joy. Do you see it? Do you long for that day? When you will be made beautiful, adorned as a bride for her wedding day. Do you yearn for it? Because if you've seen that, if you've caught just a glimpse of that, it will change your entire thinking. It will change everything in your life. Because what has this world got to give you that's better? Better than this crown of righteousness. What has it got to give you that is better than seeing the Savior come? Have your fill of shopping. Nothing wrong with shopping. Have your fill of sports and music and parties and clubbing and holiday and education and career and family and money and anything and everything else you can cram into your life. At the last you'll have nothing. course of my ministry I've conducted many funerals particularly in Stoke-on-Trent if I get, ever get a bit short of cash you'll know there'll be a report in the newspaper about a church minister digging up a grave in Stoke-on-Trent I did, once, I did one and the guy was into country and western and I won't go into the whole story but the undertaker told me he said he won't believe what's gone into that coffin into that ground he says there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds worth of equipment gone in He is wearing a belt that is covered in solid silver bullets. Solid silver bullets. Two beautiful, mint-conditioned, working Colt 45 revolvers. He is wearing a linen shirt studded with real precious gems. It's gone into the ground and it's stayed in the ground. It's done him no good. You're going to have everything in this life You can have it shoved into your coffin and put in the ground in some sort of act of curious morbidity. That's where it stays, in the ground. If the Lord tarries in a thousand years' time, it'll make some archaeologists scratch his head if they ever dig up that that, uh, cemetery, I can tell you. I've also been privileged to lay to rest some wonderful Christians. Some were prayer warriors. 
Some were preachers and faithful members and financial supporters and disciples who loved the scriptures. They lost nothing and gained everything. Do you see the difference? We've lost them for the moment. But they are with the Lord until he returns. And there is nothing that can alter that glorious certainty. And it should grip our hearts and fill our minds. And cause us to live as we ought. So what are you living for today? Or what are you living for in the life to come? Pray that Philippians 1.21 will be your motto, your anthem, will be the cry of your heart for me to live Christ, to die gain. That we who are the Lord's will live for him and place all our hope in him and will go to that moment of death crying his praises. And then we will not be disappointed, we will not be let down. Every one of us here will grow steadily older. I sometimes look in the mirror. I try not to because it's not a pretty sight. But I look in the mirror occasionally and I wonder who's that weird old looking bloke who keeps looking back at me. Because we all grow older. But may this glorious hope fill our hearts and minds more and more each day. May may it thrill our souls as we fix our eyes upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we will live as a Christian who is ready to be with the Lord. And so whether it is through life and into old age and death, or whether it is through the coming of our Savior, we will be ready to be with him. Which is far, far better. May it be so to his glory. Amen.